On this episode of the End of Tourism podcast, season four, Europe. I think 2013, the Ryanair came to Lisbon together with Airbnb and they destroyed, I mean, completely ruined the city. Uh, before that, Ryanair was only flying to Porto. And then the new government was lobbied to allow Ryanair. Then Airbnb was invented. And Lisbon is a city where people, I mean, there's not much job. So people really look into Airbnb as a way to make money. It, mm. it is so easy. I mean, the only thing that we can sell is ourselves, and we're very willing to sell ourselves mm. to, to make a decent salary. Welcome to the End of Tourism podcast, Season 4, Europe. Our conversations explore the unauthorized histories of modern travel, of wanderlust, exile, and radical hospitality. They are deep dialogues for the dilemmas of our hypermobile times. Season 4 is an introduction into what's happening in Southern Europe and beyond in terms of the over-tourism and border crises there the social movements that have arisen to contend with them, and what it means to proceed as honorable hosts and guests in our time. Recently, I moved the pod's distribution to Substack, where you can now find all of the End of Tourism episodes and essays, as well as my other writing and recordings on the themes of culture, food, media, myth, and psychedelics. All of this is available without a paywall, at chrischristu.substack.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-U dot substack.com. Currently, the pod relies on a gift economy model in which your donations ensure that this work continues. Without our current subscribers and patrons, I simply wouldn't be able to offer this to you. Thank you to each of you who offer your gift to this project. There are some simple ways to support the pod. You can sign up to my Substack, as mentioned, and receive monthly updates on new episodes and essays. I've set up a pay-what-you-can system, which allows you to support the pod on a monthly, yearly, or one-time basis, or you can sign up for free. Next, stumbling across the podcast is often made possible and difficult by those ratings-based algorithms we all love so much, typically yoked to listener reviews. So, that said, please take a moment, it doesn't take longer than that, to rate or review the pod on whatever podcast platform you're listening to, whether it be Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. It's really, really deeply appreciated. And finally, if there are other creative ways you'd like to assist, whether through post-production, marketing, diffusion, or any other manner, please feel free to get in touch. On this episode, my guests are Joanna and David, members of Stop Despejos, or Stop Evictions, an anti-capitalist, feminist, and anti-racist horizontal political collective based in Lisbon, Portugal. They fight for the right to housing and the right to the city and are not affiliated with any political party. Through mutual aid, direct action, obstruction of evictions and media campaigns, The collective defends the rights of inhabitants to keep living in their homes and neighborhoods and against institutional racism, soaring rental prices, the commodification of housing, touristification, and gentrification. 
as an autonomous grassroots movement, Stop de Spejos believes that a truly inclusive city can only be achieved by collective organization and solidarity networks between its inhabitants. Good morning, Joanna and Davide, to the End of Tourism podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Good morning, Chris. Or good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon. Thank you for having us. My pleasure, my honor. Now, I'd like, since we're always doing this virtually and since there's always time zones to deal with and that kind of thing, I'm hoping that you'd both be able to illustrate a little about where you find yourselves today and what the world looks like there a few days after these mass demonstrations that we'll discuss shortly. Yes, well, I'm, I'm in Alfama, which is a really old neighborhood in the center of Lisbon. Actually, David lives in the same neighborhood. And today, the weather is great. It's really sunny. And you start to see a lot of tourists. Uh, you start to notice that, uh, you know, these amounts of tourists that we were used to see before the pandemic starts showing up again. And honestly, I'm still recovering from the, the demonstration during the weekend because we were, what, like three months working for this demonstration, probably around three, four months. So, yeah, it was a lot of hard work, but it was worth it at the end, for sure. I, I am in the same neighborhood in Alfama, and the sky is perfectly blue. It's the classic Carlisbon. It's a city that everybody loves. Thank you, David. Davide. Thank you, Joanna. And so you both come to us today on behalf of an organization called Stop Despejos. Now, before we get into the gritty details of the demonstrations, I'm wondering if you two would be willing to share a bit about the history of the organization, why it was started, and perhaps when and by whom. Yeah, it, it is called Stop the Spagers. It just means stop addiction. It was founded in, in 2017, about six years ago, because at that time, in 2012, during the Troika, there was, after, after the financial crisis, crisis in Portugal, I mean, all over the world, in Portugal, the International Monetary Fund and the, the European Union understood that there was a great opportunity for real estate market and tourism in Portugal. And so they convinced the government, the right-wing government, to change the law about renting. And it was much, much simpler to evict people. Mm. It has become much simpler. And one of the ways is actually not to renew contracts. So the contract normally lasts five years. So just five years after the new law, all people were evicted. And so, including myself. And that's Mm -hmm. why we founded this organization. Wow. Joanna, do you have anything to add in that regard? Uh, Yes, I joined during 2018. So about a year after David joined. Actually, I also got evicted. And it kind of started because of that, like I was in a really old place in the, in the center and my landlord wanted to, to increase the rent for more than 300 euros. So wow. that's the thing, like 
there is no rent control happening mm. in Portugal. If you are a landlord and if your house is falling apart, you can ask for whichever price you, you desire. So by that time, I was doing some research, like thinking to myself, this cannot be legal. Like, this is insane. And then I found out that it was indeed legal. And then I was doing another research uh, to see if someone was fighting against this. So that's how I, I found out about Stocks Beijos. And by that time, my ex-boyfriend also had some issues with his landlord. So yeah, that's how I got to Stocks Beijos. I'm there since 2018. It's also an autonomous collective. So we are not connected to any political party. We are self-sufficient and we are anti-capitalist as well. And we also work together with ABITA, which is also a housing rights association that uh, also fights evictions and provides legal advice to people that are on the risk of eviction. Mm. Yeah, and that name popped up as well, ABITA in some of the news press releases that came out regarding the demonstrations of this past weekend. And so maybe we could start from there while it's still fresh in your minds with these recent actions that were organized by Stop Despechos. Nice. <laughs> that came to pass this weekend and, and culminated in, in marches and protests on the 1st of April. My first question is, what did each of you see over the course of the protests and what has been the response in the aftermath. So this protest was organized not only by Scottish Pages and Abita, was also by a lot of different collectives and associations, not only housing rights collectives, also people that got involved, dozens of different organizations that were preparing and working for this protests. We got around 20,000 people on the streets. I'm not good with numbers. David is the mathematician. <laughs> um, but yes, around 20,000 people on the streets, which is massive for Portugal, mm. to be honest. There wasn't the housing rights protest in Lisbon. I think the last one was organized by Sochfers and Edita, which was during 2018, if I'm not mistaken. So yes, um, personally, I wasn't expecting that much people on the streets, but it was really beautiful to see this amount of people organized and marching the streets and asking not only for... Um, better housing, but also the right to belong to the city, you know, to have a city that it's not only made for tourists or for or for the rich or for private investors, but for a, a really inclusive city that is made for its people, for the people that works there, for the people that, that lives there. So that was really beautiful. It was beautiful to watch people shouting. It was really awesome. I imagine that being able to see that amount of people and not necessarily the number, that kind of abstract 20,000, but the number of people that you would have seen in the streets as well is a really deep way to measure the discontent and the crisis as opposed to just imagining that so many people or just like a few people share these sentiments, right? Yes, of course. And you would see everyone on the streets. 
Like you would see people that live in, on the city center, but also people that live in the social neighborhoods in the outskirts of the city as well. Like all of them together demanding better housing and a better city and rent controls. So it was, it was amazing. When I woke up the next morning, I felt really grateful, even though there was some, there was some police violence at the end of the demonstration. Still, I, I woke up feeling really grateful for that day, for sure. Thank you, Joan. And Davide, how, what was your impression of the demonstrations? Yeah, it was, it was impressive. Let me say that Abita is a part of a European coalition called the European Action Coalition for the right to housing and to the city. And together with Abita, we organize the Housing Action Day every year. But we could feel it. We could feel it because we have been organizing some preliminary meeting and they were full of people. I mean, you can feel this moment when the people wants to take some action. And uh, we could really feel it. It was, it was great. In fact, our uh, previous campaign was called Retomara Cidade, Take Back the City. Mm. And we really felt uh, that for one day we took the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was great because, I mean, when you are walking in such a big demonstration and you look back and you see the street full of people, and you know that you and your comrades are responsible somehow for that. It, it is really an amazing feeling. Uh, and now we will see what, what will happen. Uh, mm. This depends on us, but also on, on the willingness of other people to, to join our action. So doing you know the research that I could online, when I started looking up the protests, Lisbon online in the English-speaking world anyways, there was clearly this kind of associated press uh, press release that came out because every Anglophone media outlet that I could find that had put something out in this regard had the exact same wording, yes. right? And, and you, you can start to realize very quickly what's happening in that regard. Um, but one of the things that was written in the press release is this as follows. And it said that the figures released by Confidencial Immobiliario, which collects data on housing, shows that rents in Lisbon, which is a tourist hotspot, have jumped 65% since 2015, and sale prices have skyrocketed 137% during the same period. According to another real estate data company, Casafari, Rents increased 37% last year alone, more than current figures in Barcelona or Paris, which are two of the most over-touristed or visited cities in the world. Low wages and high rents have made Lisbon the world's third least viable city to live in, according to a study by insurance brokers, CIA landlords. And uh, that's not a joke, CIA landlords. Anyways. So I imagine reading this, I imagine that it hasn't always been like this, right? And I'm wondering if you could each tell our listeners a little bit about how this came to pass. I know you mentioned the change of the law, of the five-year lease law, and I guess how you've both seen the city change in the course of your time there. Yeah, I must say that apart from the new renting law, 
So what happened also in, I think, 2013, it, that Ryanair came to Lisbon together with Airbnb and they destroyed, I mean, completely mm-hmm. ruined the city. And, uh, before that, Ryanair was only flying to Porto. And then the new government was lobbied to allow Ryanair. Then Airbnb was invented. And Lisbon is a city where people, I mean, there, there is not much job. So people really look into Airbnb as a way to make money. It, mm. it is so easy. I mean, the only thing that we can sell is ourselves, and we're very willing to sell ourselves mm. to, to make a decent salary. I mean, it was really perfect because it's full of people that wants to come to Lisbon because it's such a beautiful city. And we just have this to sell, the city itself. And so all the neighborhoods, the central neighborhood of Lisbon were flooded with Airbnb. It's really incredible. And with Airbnb in town like that, without any regulation, without any regulation, I mean, everybody can rent how many houses or flats you want in whatever situation they are. So the prices skyrocketed. You go from 1,000 euro per square meter to buy a house. Now it's 5,000. Wow. I mean, people maybe bought a flat for 100,000 euros and now they sell it for 500,000 euros. And now it's, it's even getting worse because... So when in 2017, I was evicted, my rent passed from 500 euros per month to almost the double. But now I, I know people renting a flat, a small flat, like for 1,500 euros per month. And the salary is still the same. And, and then a lot of real estate investment, really. I mean, all, all the big players in real estate investment they just came to town they started to build luxury condos there are luxury condos everywhere in town Mm. really everywhere it's crazy i mean you see construction sites everywhere but for whom for nobody because all these luxury condoms are are actually empty they're just houses that are bought and then sold after a few years and things like that. They're just made to store money, essentially. Mm. So there are, there are a lot of economic factors. Like one is theories and the other real estate uh, speculation. And this is all also promoted by the state itself. It's not, yeah, it's not just a matter of, you know, it's, it's the state also giving tax benefits to this private investors, also, also to digital nomads, you know, that come here and they can, they are the ones that can pay all these high rents because the minimum wage in Portugal is around 740 euros and you can find, and there's basements that, that are uh, 700 euros per month, basements. I don't know nowadays exactly how much is a one bed one-bedroom apartment in the center, but I would say it's around 1,000 euros. You can easily find a one-bedroom apartment for 1,000 euros per month, yeah. Speaking of tourism and Airbnb, we can't really speak about these themes anymore without speaking about, there's other names we could use, but digital nomads. And this was another thing that was brought up in the English press releases as around 
this question in Europe uh, referred to as the golden visa. And in the report, it's written that the current socialist government announced last month that a housing package, among other measures, ended the controversial golden visa scheme and banned new licenses for Airbnb properties. Critics, however, say it is not enough to lower prices in the short term. Now, given that I imagine that you two make up some of these critics, I'm curious if you could explain a little bit for our listeners about what that golden visa program is or was and what it has done to the city and culture in Lisbon, if not the country as a whole. The golden visa program is basically the state giving tax benefits to residents from outside of the European Union. And all they need to do basically is to buy a property for um, at least uh, half a million euros. And also to create some jobs, but in practice, they just need to buy a property. So what happens is a lot of companies are also increasing the prices of the houses because they know that someone will buy it for those prices. So that's one of the consequences of, of the golden visa. And actually, the government is not ending the golden visa. It's just making some changes and changing the name because they are still giving tax benefits to someone that wants to invest in Portugal. So this is basically the so-called socialist government financing people and companies that are already rich. So it's basically the state giving money to the rich. And these measures are not enough. I mean, this government is only socialist by the name. It's not socialist in practice because even mm. those measures that aim to put Airbnbs in the market, it's still the state giving tax benefits to those landlords, to those people that own Airbnbs. Let me be just a little bit more precise. You know, Portugal belongs to the Schengen area. So if you have a Portuguese visa, you can travel everywhere in Europe. So this golden visa program was a way for anyone outside the European Union to get a visa for the Schengen area by buying a property. And so it is really something terrible. Mm. I mean, to actually sell visas to rich people, it has to do a lot, not just with the fact of making the housing market crazy because, of course, the price is skyrocketed. But also it has to do with money laundering and it was really, really a bad thing for Portugal in general. And also this idea of digital nomads is somehow similar. It targets other kinds of people, not the super rich from, I don't know, China or wherever, but it, it targets uh, people working probably in some startup in California or places like that. It's just a way to make uh, life easier in Portugal for rich people and more miserable for people in Portugal. Because the problem is that the economy is not very solid in Portugal. And so instead of investing money in building a better economy, they're just trying to attract people that already have money. It's becoming like economically very depending of money from abroad, from money from tourism, money from people that actually work abroad. 
just a nice place to live for people from outside. And the people from the inside, well, <laughs> too bad for them. Yeah, the main issue is that the digital nomads usually come to live here earning salaries, wages from their home country. So they come to live here with salaries from the United States, for instance. So for them, it's not paying 800 euros per rent is really cheap which is not for us. So mm. that's the inequality here. Yeah, and, and that the place is more often than not, I mean, you could say almost always, but we'll say more often than not temporary in the eyes of the digital nomad, the tourist, perhaps even the people who purchase the golden visa, because there's always this sense of, well, I could do this somewhere else, right? Because there's other places to be a digital nomad, there's other places to be a tourist, there's other places to get golden visas and on and on. And so I wanted to ask about the kind of, we'll say blowback or perhaps xenophobia that can arise from these things and does and has. You know, it's something that I've seen here in Oaxaca over the last seven or eight years, especially in the last couple of years with inundation or flooding of this place with, again, digital nomads, over tourism, Airbnb. And it's been hard personally, but it's been easy visually to watch a kind of resentment and xenophobia grow against foreigners here as a result of this gentrification and culture loss. And so I'm curious if you two have seen anything similar in that regard in, in Lisboa. Or how has the general response been? And I think it's important to say here as well that at least at the beginning, when Airbnb tends to create this stranglehold in a tourist destination, that a lot of the people who are who are renting these flats or homes are locals, right? And then certainly later on, you see companies, corporations like Blackstone in Europe taking over. These issues, we often try to make them simple to understand when, in fact, they're extremely complex and complicated. And so I guess I'm curious what you both have seen in regards to the loss or perceived loss of culture in Lisboa and the reactions from locals in regards to that against the foreigner or perhaps against the systemic structures. Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting question. I would let David go first if you if you have already something on your mind. Well, I don't think uh, Portuguese people are very vocal in the xenophobia. Mm. As a foreigner myself, I never faced it. I mean, I, in general, they're quite polite. Racism is uh, always against. Uh, black people or the gypsy. I mean, there is some vague resentment against uh, tourists, but not too much. You, you don't feel it too much. I mean, I don't feel it. So. Yes, me neither. I mean, you have people that feel really annoyed by tourists, especially people that live in the center, obviously. They feel annoyed, but I wouldn't call it hatred, you know, in the same way that I would call hatred um, towards um, immigrants from Nepal or from India. Those are the ones that I would say that get more hatred. And also the gypsy community mm. and uh, people from social neighborhoods. 
I mean, immigrants that live in social neighborhoods. So I wouldn't say that there's a lot of hatred towards tourists themselves. I would say only like um, annoyance. Because there's also people that stand to, that really believes that without tourism, we would have no economy. You know, they right. cannot imagine the end of tourism. <laughs> Let's put it this way. They aren't uh, capable, you know, of imagining a new economy that wouldn't depend on tourism. And you could see that during the pandemic. So I wouldn't really call it hate, only annoyance. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And- You'd mentioned earlier that the current socialist government is socialist by name and not in practice. And I'm curious how Stop the Spechos sees the necessity of making change from the grassroots or if there's a possibility of doing that on the electoral level. It has to happen on the grassroots <laughs> level. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We do not trust that a political party will solve the, the issue because this is an issue that has been increasing over the, over the years and the state itself helps the increase of this issue. So we truly believe that in order for the change to happen, we need to be organized. People need to be organized. It's only through those grassroots movements that we feel that we are able to really create a radical change, a structural change. This is beyond political parties. I think it's more about the people and those grassroots movements. That's why we do not associate ourselves to any political party, even though some of them try. But yes, our work is based on social movements and with people. We have tried to stop a lot of evictions that were not made by private landlords. They were made by the state. So that's another reason. Me personally, I don't trust the state or political parties because the state is, itself is also able to evict and to destroy people the right to adequate housing and the right to live in the city. So that's mm-hmm. why we need to work with people and to work with the grassroots movements. I would say that we are like more like let's say, ecologist movement, we are really for system change mm. and, and not to change inside the system. But I must say that some people that used to belong to our organization that are really still very close to our organization, they founded a new movement uh, for a referendum to ban Airbnb. Okay, this would be like, it is the system, but without passing through parties really to use some direct democracy tool inside the system. And now possibly next year there will be this referendum to ban Airbnb. We don't know because such a local referendum was never used in the history of Lisbon. So it is a tool that only exists in theory. In practice, we do not know. Mm. But see, this is something that maybe the most anarchists in our group do not like, but in general, we are not against it, the use of these referendum tools. Yeah, I think that we are not saying that, you know, every politician is the same or that every party is the same. Of course, that we recognize that, you know, some politicians may be better than others. But at the same time, what David was saying, we want to make 
radical changes, not outside of the system, not inside the system. Because even with good examples like uh, the mayor of Barcelona, the system itself is so corrupted that it's really hard to make changes within the system. It is not just one person with good intentions that is going to change the system. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, these issues that you've both spoken to are everyone's issues. They're not left issues. They're not right issues. They affect everyone. And you can kind of see through that and that the political spectrum in that regard is just incredibly divisive. And so I wanted to ask you both a little bit about your advice suggestions around solidarity here in Oaxaca. It's a city that's been more and more touristed over the last, uh, we'll say 40 or 50 years, but really not on the tourist map until the last 10 years or so. And then at the end of the lockdowns became this kind of massive escape destination for a lot of Americans and Canadians and Europeans as well. And so there's this sudden kind of, oh, this is too much. And we never imagined it could be this bad, but suddenly we're there and it's here and we don't know how to deal with it. And maybe because of the nature of the history and culture and politics in this part of the world, but there isn't necessarily this this level of communication, network building, solidarity that there is, for example, in Southern Europe. And so my first question in that regard is what kind of advice would you offer people working with social movements here and in other parts of the world who need to build solidarity among the citizenry, but also between organizations who haven't done that before? What advice would you have for them? Well, difficult question. Yeah. <laughs> Difficult question. I don't know if we are such a, a good model because our results haven't been that great. But it's a long process. And I, I believe that we are still in that process, like in the middle of that process of building solidarity with different movements. I saw more solidarity perhaps during this organization of the protests, of the demonstration. But I think it was a process that started already during the pandemic. So it's a long and, and hard process to build solidarity between movements. Uh, because most of the time, I mean, we do not get paid to do this uh, political activity. So, you know, people have their own jobs and their own lives. And sometimes it's really hard to do something as simple as planning an assembly with different organizations or collectives. So I would say, I mean, the best advice I could give is to be patient and to accept really that it's going to be a process that sometimes you feel like you are all by yourself, that you are the only collective doing something. And other times, you'll have a lot of people in your public assemblies. So it's a long process. And my best advice would be that. And also to respect the differences between several collectives and organizations and between people. What's the main goal? What's blue <laughs> sticking all of it together? What are your enemies, basically? What are the enemies that you are fighting? What type of city or what type of country 
would you like to live in? So use your imagination mm. and use it as a fuel also to create goals and to plan. One thing is, is to be well organized as much as possible. And being organized for us, it's like we are a perfectly horizontal organization. We don't have any leader. But like something simple, every time we meet, I mean, every week, we have one moderator, one taking notes. And then another thing which is important, it's kind of a blend between action and study. It is important to study, I mean, to to grow one one's understanding. But also it is important to actually act. You need to actually meet people that uh, are in the situation you are fighting against. You need both, both action and, and studying. And then one other thing is never get overwhelmed because when you start working, doing activity with people that are being evicted or losing their homes, these are, uh, um, let's say, emotionally very heavy situation. Uh, and more often than not, uh, these people are actually losing their home. You cannot do too much. And so it is important that you don't feel guilty for that. You don't spend all your life trying to save other people's lives. Because mm -hmm. if you do that for six months, then you quit the struggles. Mm -hmm. So it's better to keep like a lower profile, but to be consistent during the years. Well, thank you both for that. And then the other side of the question or the coin of the question. So the first one was regarding social movements. And then this next one is speaking to individuals. You know, there's been this, for me anyways, this clear view towards tourism as a kind of escapism that masquerades as freedom of choice, especially for those of us in the Americas, right? So the pandemic deepened that, to say the least. And as a result of people getting to choose where they live, the places they choose generally suffer as a result, you know, regardless of people's good intentions or even good behavior. And so sometimes it's hard to resist the urge to blame the foreigner and to focus on them instead of the system and the structures of oppression that it produces. But at the same time, we need the foreigner in the context of digital nomadism and tourism and the golden visa, we need each of them, each of those people to understand their consequence in the world. And so finally, I'd like to ask you both, what advice would you have for the tourists and expats who want to experience Portugal or who already live there, who perhaps want to act and proceed as responsible residents? those who would want to visit. A tourist must know that if he comes to Lisbon or she comes to Lisbon, she will spend most time staring at other tourists like him or just like an ecosystem just made of tourists. Of tourists. A tourist here live actually in a strange ecosystem made of just of tourists and I think it's kind of not a very nice experience. So uh, to be more, more precise, uh, half of the time a tourist will look at his smartphone and half of the time another tourist like him. I think this, this way of living or traveling, uh, it's, 
is very superficial. You don't get anything to come to Lisbon or to any other place in the world just to spend time looking at the smartphone or looking at other activists like you. But this is like more a moral statement. I mean, people should look inside themselves to start doing things which are more meaningful instead of just doing things that they happen to do because everybody does the same thing. Yeah, it's a difficult question. I agree with with David. I also worked on the tourist industry years ago. And I remember I got the feeling that the tourists in Lisbon kind of felt deceived. They would ask me all the time, where are the locals? Where can I find locals? You know, I only see tourists around me. Like, can you recommend me a place where where the locals wow. go and so on? So, yeah, I would say the tourist basically uh, is not worth it. <laughs> you know, it's not worth going to Lisbon, spending holidays. It's not just a matter of personal uh, responsibility, because I understand that people work and they feel the need to spend the holidays on some cheap uh, destination. And Lisbon is really cheap for, for a lot of, of tourists. It's more about the systemic change. But at the same time, I believe that we still need to have some sort of personal responsibility. So I'd say just go somewhere else where it's not too touristified and just try to choose another destination that is not totally uh, exploited by the mass tourism to the golden bees and uh, you know and the digital nomads honestly i don't know how how they could be more uh, responsible because they are taking advantage of a situation where that situation is only possible because the, the locals are getting affected by it. Maybe try to get involved in your local social movements. Get involved, try to know the neighbors and to do something. Use your privilege in order to change something. But be aware that you are only here because you are privileged enough to benefit from our government. Mm. I think that's really important as well, this notion of if you're going to go and live in a place understand the history, understand the culture, understand where you are, when you are, and get involved, right? Get involved with the social movements and the grassroots of the place. And so, you know, for our listeners, or maybe people either visiting Portugal or living there as well, how might they find out more about Stop Despechos? They can find us on social media. We have a Facebook page, also an Instagram page, and all of our assemblies are open to the public. Everybody can go there. Usually, our meetings are on um, an association called City Gaita in the center, in one of the most gentrified areas of the city center. So it's cool that we have our meetings there. And it's every Mondays at 7.30 p.m., Usually we start late because we are in Portugal, but no. everybody is welcome. <laughs> everybody is more than welcome. You don't need to, to be like a researcher or an academic or to even suffer or to have suffered some kind of eviction. Everybody is welcome to our assemblies and to join. I would like to say that it's really beautiful to be part of like a movement and a collective like Stop the Pleasure. So when after I joined, I was facing a difficult time in my life, and and for me it was very important to to be there. I mean, 
First of all, to see that there are people with bigger problems than mine. And then it's, for me, it's really a pause from my personal life. I go there. And also must say that the people that are involved in this kind of struggle are in general pretty special people. So you meet people you would, wouldn't normally meet uh, at work or, <laughs> or in a pub. It's really enriching things to do. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure all of those links for social media and the website are up on the End of Tourism website when the episode launches. And from what I understand, there will be some extra media to share. Well, it's been a, a great pleasure to meet and speak with both of you, at least virtually, and maybe one day in person. Uh, you will be welcome. So, you will be welcome. <laughs> More likewise. than welcome, Chris. Yes. <laughs> likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Chris. you so much, Chris. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening. To follow up on this episode, check out the homework section on our website at theendoftourism.com. Likewise, you can subscribe and join the conversation at chrischristu.substack.com. That's C H R I S C H R I S. Tou.substack.com. The pod embraces a gift economy model, and by signing up, spreading the word, and supporting us financially, you can ensure that this work continues in a good way. Until next time, farewell, friends.